0: It's the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Peratt, and we are talking red blood cell Transfusion Day. This will be part one because it's a really big topic to cover, and I want to break it up into a few components. I have no conflicts of interest to report, and it's hard to think about how there could be conflicts of interest when it comes to talking about blood, unless you are a vampire. Let's start with some basic questions about blood storage and age. What is the current maximum number of days the FDA currently allows for blood storage? And the answer to that is 42 days. So is older blood worse for you than fresh blood? It does appear to be the case. The deceased celebrated soprano opera singer Beverly Sills, who once was on a cover of Time Magazine, said... In youth, we run into difficulties. and in old age, difficulties run into us. Well, it also turns out that older age blood running into us has more difficulties. What evidence is emerging that blood stored for longer periods of time is worse for you? There was a study done a few years ago printed in the March twentieth, two 2008 New England Journal of Medicine titled duration of red cell storage and complications after cardiac surgery. The conclusion I will quote from that study was, "...in patients undergoing cardiac surgery, transfusion of red cells that had been stored for more than two weeks was associated with a significantly increased risk of post-operative complications as well as reduced short-term and long-term survival." More specifically, in the discussion section of that article, the authors explain, "...in-hospital death, prolonged intubation, renal failure, septicemia or sepsis, multi-organ failure, and a composite of serious complications were all more frequent in patients given blood stored for more than 14 days. Furthermore, survival, particularly in the first six months after surgery, was significantly reduced." Why is that? What are the age-related storage defects of blood? There are several functional and structural changes we are learning about. For example, older blood is not as flexible, so it loses the ability to deform itself through the microvasculature as effectively. Before we had clinical evidence from the New England Journal of Medicine that there was problems with longer stored blood as far as it affects our patients, we have had evidence for a long time that there are biochemical changes that happen with stored blood. For instance, and I will quote from Wintrobe's Clinical Hematology, the 11th edition. This is back in 2004, the most recent text I could find from Wintrobe. And it says, During... Storage, red cells metabolize glucose and produce lactic acid and pyruvic acid. It then goes on to talk about red cell two three DPG depletion, which is not related to red cell viability, but to the ability of the red cells to deliver oxygen. And when we transfuse blood, isn't that what we're asking it to do? I mean we can replace Patients with crystalloid and colloid or dextran or starch. And these blood substitutes do not provide oxygen transport. What we really are worried about is not so much volume when we're transfusing blood, although that might be a small worry. The bigger worry is can we get oxygen to the tissues? So, going on with a quote from Wintrow, page 836. They say the oxygen dissociation curve of cells that are 2,3-DPG depleted is shifted to the left, resulting in increased hemoglobin oxygen affinity and decreased tissue oxygenation. Now again, they weren't sure what the clinical implications of that were back in 2004, but now the clinical implications seem to be coming out. There are definitely other problems with aging blood, including the depletion of adenosine phosphate and the buildup of free hemoglobin and cytokines. Now, if you don't want your patients to get old blood, we need to work on the ever-present blood shortages in the U.S., and it is a tiny minority of people that actually give blood in America. If you aren't giving blood and you aren't asking your friends and family to give, then you can't complain to those trying to manage a product with variable supply and irregular demand. So sometimes that blood will be stored in a refrigerator up to 42 days, but most medical facilities tend to only have a three-day supply. Elective surgeries definitely get canceled when that supply runs too low in a lot of communities. Sometimes blood hits the 42-day age and will need to be discarded and not used. That is usually only 3% of packed red blood cells. An important notable exception was right after September 11th during the terrorist attacks when so many people donated blood out of their conscious and charitable giving. And at that point, actually, 49,860 units were discarded because there was too much blood supply in the system. Another notable exception is the declining practice of autologous blood donation. That's when the patient gives their own blood before surgery. Unless you have multiple antibodies to blood products, it's probably a bad idea for most people. In addition to potentially making a person anemic just before surgery, about half of the blood is not used and thrown out. Now let's switch gears a little bit here. It's worth knowing that the risk of infectious complications are not nearly as common as non-infectious complications. Let me quantitate that fact in more detail for you. The safety of the blood supply continues to improve as better screening of those donating blood and expanded testing of actual blood also improve. My data regarding infection risk and non-infection risks with red blood cells comes from a table printed in the November 2, 2011 Journal of American Medical Association, so that's pretty recent for you guys, and it's Table 1 what they say is the complication risk of getting HIV virus is 1 in 1.8 million. The risk of getting hepatitis C is 1 in 1.6 million. Hepatitis B, 1 in 220,000. Getting bacteria, and this uh, also includes platelets which have more risk of getting a bacterial infection than blood, is 1 in 75,000. Now, let's Correlate that with the non-infectious complications. What's the risk of an acute hemolytic reaction? 1 in 25,000. A mistransfusion happens 1 in 19,000 patients. Transfusion-related acute lung injury, trally, maybe we'll talk about that in another podcast soon, 1 in 5,000 patients. Transfusion-associated circulatory overload, 1 in 400 A fever or an allergy to the blood happens in one in every hundred blood transfusions. And that's the facts, right? Wrong. Particularly when we are talking about transfusion-related infections. Now think about it. We don't transfuse blood. If it does test positive for HIV or hepatitis C or whatever, that blood is discarded, How do we measure transfusion transmitted infection if we can't detect the infection in the blood? And the answer to that is estimates. Since we cannot quantify these things, do you check all your patients for hepatitis B or C and HIV before and then after each transfusion to see if the blood was falsely tested negative? Nobody does that. For those more interested in this topic, the lead article in the New England Journal of Medicine way back on June 27, 1996, goes into this issue in detail. It is titled, The Risk of Transfusion Transmitted Viral Infections. Unlike some in my family, I do not have a very good mathematical mind, so I won't get into the details of how the estimate models are calculated since I honestly still didn't totally get it after reading the method section twice. However, There are a few selected quotes from that article to put more perspective on why this indeed needs to be a matter of estimating. And the quote is this, The estimates of residual risk reported in this study represent the probability that a unit is infectious but was donated in the antibody-negative window period before seroconversion. And another important quote from that article is, Although new techniques of testing will bring us closer to the goal of zero risk, it is unlikely that any test or combination of tests will be 100% effective in detecting window period infections. Okay, so can you name all the diseases blood donations are screened for in the United States? And this list will continue to evolve. As of now, the infectious diseases that we screen for are human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, both types 1 and 2, hepatitis B and C virus, human T-cell lymphotrophic virus, types 1 and 2, also known as HTLV, West Nile virus, recently added, Chagas disease, and syphilis. Blood intended for transfusion into patients who are at increased risk for cytomegalovirus, or CMV, is tested for CMV antibody or undergoes leukocyte reduction since CMV resides in the white blood cells. And this, again, will be a list that continues to grow. In addition to having potentially dangerous risks, blood is a precious resource. From a purely economic standpoint, how much does a single unit of Pac-Red blood cells cost? In that November 2nd JAMA article that I recently cited says that the cost is about $760 for each unit that is transfused. So while some may be upset that we don't screen for human herpes virus 8 or hepatitis G or parvovirus B19 or prions and all kinds of other stuff, we must remember these tests have real costs and also every time you give a blood transfusion It has real costs and real risks. And that is going to be the topic of my next podcast, When Should We Transfuse Pac-Red Blood Cells? You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Peratt. Hope this was helpful for you. If it was, please go to iTunes and give me a review and rating, and I hope you do have a good rest of your day.